1915, the American humor magazine Puck, known for its political cartoons and satire, published a special edition guest edited by New York state suffrage groups in anticipation of the upcoming statewide referendum on women's suffrage. The centerfold illustration called The Awakening, drawn by Henry Mayer, depicts Lady Liberty with the slogan Votes for Women emblazoned on her tunic, awakening the nation to women's desire for suffrage, walking across the already enfranchised American West toward the East where women were reaching up, clamoring to be saved by her. Printed just below Mayer's illustration is a five-stanza poem by Alice Dewar Miller. Less famous now, Miller was a popular poet and writer of the early 20th century who was part of Dorothy Parker's famous Algonquin Roundtable and often captured the mood of the movement with an irreverent quick wit and skill. Untitled, this poem is a call to arms for women across the nation to take up the cause of suffrage. Look forward, women, always. Utterly cast away the memory of hate and struggle and bitterness. Bonds may endure for a night, but freedom come with a day, and the free must remember nothing less. Combined, this centerfold and the magazine's special edition were meant to capture the contemporary spirit of the late 19th and early 20th century's most current democratic movement, women's suffrage. While signaling a new dawn for the nation, in many ways it also harkened back to John Gast's 1872 painting American Progress that depicts a winged, white, ghost-like woman sweeping westward settlement, capitalism, and Native and African American displacement, all the trappings of American progress. Now she's bringing the vote, the key to citizenship and democracy, back to her eastern sisters. Mayer's illustration provides an intriguing depiction of the American suffrage movement, but doesn't tell the whole story. Not even close. By the end of 1914, more than 4 million women had voting rights equal to men in 11 states, all in the West, leaving women elsewhere still reaching for the light of liberty's torch of freedom. By the time the suffrage amendment was ratified in 1920, women in 27 states, 56% of the nation, held full voting rights. Nearly all of those states were in the West and the Midwest. But for many suffragists and their supporters, the real prize was New York, the most populous state, the state that would signal the domino-like toppling of all the other stalwart states. Several times since the beginning of the women's rights campaign, suffragists had presented the New York state legislature with the opportunity to extend voting rights to women. Each time they voted it down, if it even left committee. While many of the initial women's rights activists came from New York, women's suffrage found its initial successes not in the Empire State, but in the West and Midwest. From the vantage point of hindsight, these Western victories can look deceptive, easily won as the torch of liberty strides over them toward the East. But that's not really the case. The suffrage victories in the West and the Midwest came in stages, sometimes, as in the case of Washington, were repealed and centered on local and regional conversations about immigration, temperance, and citizenship. When we add in Southern suffrage, a post-war addition to the national suffrage movement, the very real conversations on race, the 15th Amendment, and the role of women in the franchise come to light. No matter what Henry Mayer depicted in his centerfold in Puck, not a single one of the state suffrage campaigns was easy. Each one was individual and relied on local suffragists who, more times than not, supported suffrage for reasons that conflicted with the national message of the National American Woman Suffrage Association. For a national movement, these regional differences often caused conflict and made it nearly impossible to craft a single message of women's suffrage that reflected the true diversity of American women. On this episode of Hindsight, we will dive deeper into the roles that regionalism and race played in the development and evolution of the suffrage movement, and in the campaigns to win suffrage state by state. 
So join me, Dr. Robin Henry, for Episode 3, Regionalism, Race, and the Right to Vote. Philadelphia hosted the first World's Fair to celebrate the centennial of the United States' Declaration of Independence. On July 4th, a formal celebration took place in the city's famous Independence Square, featuring distinguished politicians, thinkers, and leaders of the nation, and suffragists. The movement had suffered during the Civil War and debate on suffrage, but Susan B. Anthony was determined to remind her fellow Americans that the promises of the Declaration of Independence, while extended to African-American men, had yet to make women full citizens. The day before, organizers had told the suffragists that they would be welcome on the condition that their tone remained celebratory and not critical. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was too offended to attend, but Anthony chose to participate. After listening to hours of exultant words, Anthony finally got her turn. Upon ascending to the podium, she declared, quote, I present to you a declaration of rights from the women citizens of the United States. As Anthony continued to speak, copies of the 1876 Declaration of the Rights of the Women of the United States circulated. Based on the 1848 Declaration of Sentiments, this updated version was more strident, recognizing rights instead of sentiments, speaking of individual instead of collective rights, and instead of resolutions, it included articles of impeachment. After her speech, Anthony led a group of women two blocks to the United Unitarian Church to listen to women's rights activists speak. For weeks afterward, the energy of that day, both in the square and in the church, empowered women across the country to write to Anthony to have their names added to the new declaration. From this story, you would not imagine that the next few decades would be considered the low point of women's rights and suffrage activism. But activists saw this period as less promising, marked more by division and rejection than by triumphs. In their history of women's suffrage, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony referred to this time as the doldrums. African-American suffragists called it the nadir. However, historians have begun to reconsider this categorization, seeing that the suffrage movement's promises, while not entirely fulfilled, did seize some movement. Increasingly, women could vote in school and local elections. After the failed attempt at full suffrage in 1867, Kansas women won municipal suffrage in 1887. They had been voting in school board elections since 1861. Other state legislatures, in order to silence the chance of, quote, no taxation without representation, extended suffrage to tax-paying women. Granted, this was a small number of women simply because most women could not own property outright and thereby were not taxpayers. But this and other small overtures allowed suffragists to claim victories. Still, full national suffrage was always the goal. Some of the earliest change on this front came from a remote part of the American West, Wyoming Territory. In 1869, while the rest of the nation focused on reconstruction efforts in the South and the tension between Congress and President Andrew Johnson, the legislature of this recently organized territory voted to enfranchise its non-Native American women. After waiting for a few days, the federally appointed territorial governor approved. 
This population of newly enfranchised Americans, around 1,500 women, were the first women since 1807 to have the franchise. This pivotal movement became part of Wyoming's identity, one that it carried through to statehood in 1890. Suffragists hoped that this small victory in a far-flung part of the nation would inspire activists and legislatures throughout the country to extend the franchise elsewhere. With this victory in Wyoming, the question of what would women do with their vote suddenly moved beyond theory and into practice, and supporters, skeptics, and detractors watched with curiosity. What women would do with their vote also spoke to the heart of what women's roles were and how women were valued in society, a question that continues today. Some women saw their access to the vote as a way to sweep out corruption that had long plagued politics. Others saw it as a way to reform communities, in particular to address the presence of alcohol by voting in temperance candidates and supporting temperance reforms. Still others saw the vote as a way to offset the political voices of people they did not consider to be, quote, real Americans, namely African-American men and immigrants. A very small number of women argued for suffrage rights based on autonomous citizenship rights. Opponents insisted that women's suffrage would upend the social order. While Wyoming's suffrage measure seemed to sail through without too much issue, Utah Territory and Colorado State suffrage provided a more realistic picture of the contentious and localized suffrage fights to come. In Utah, suffrage passed in 1870 because of three separate factions' views on how female voters would address the controversial issue of polygamy. While polygamy was eventually rejected by the Church of Latter-day Saints and specifically outlawed in Utah's state constitution, some LDS elders who supported the practice thought enfranchising women would increase the territory's electorate. Others hoped enfranchisement would help outsiders, who often held extreme prejudices against the LDS, to stop believing that they mistreated women. Non-LDS residents supported enfranchising women so that they would eventually vote to outlaw polygamy. For national suffragists who focused little on the issue of polygamy, they saw that they had secured the franchise in another territory. Two territories in two years. Things were beginning to roll. Really, it's not hard to blame women suffragists for thinking this. After decades of not achieving very little movement forward, this new momentum seemed to signal a new day. In fact, five territories, Wyoming, Utah, Washington, Montana, and Alaska, all extended suffrage to women before statehood. For some, the fact that it came in a new region, the American West, seemed logical. While Native Americans and Latinx communities had called the region west of the Mississippi River home for centuries, Anglo-American settlement increased with great earnest after the Civil War. The federal government passed legislation, such as the Homestead Act, the Pacific Railway Act, and the Morrill Land Grant Act in 1862, to encourage community settlement, development, and growth. It wanted to transform unorganized areas into territories that would eventually become states, and between 1876 and 1912, the final 11 states of the lower 48 joined the nation. Suffragists eyed this region for a number of reasons. First, a really commonly held narrative is that they believed that the resourcefulness of women settlers made it more difficult for men to deny them full citizenship rights. If women were building the infrastructure of their territories, it was hard to restrict their voting rights. While this version of the story isn't exactly wrong, it simplifies the regional, ethnic, religious, and class-based reasons that many held. Most women, regardless of background, viewed the vote as a tool to accomplish something else, and often that reason was not all that nice. However, the relative ease with which women won the vote in Wyoming and Utah does not reflect the difficulty of the territorial and state campaigns in the West or any region. 
These were long, hard-fought, and often unsuccessful movements that dragged on for years, sometimes decades. New Mexico women only achieved the franchise with the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Colorado suffragists wanted to capitalize on their neighboring territory's successes, and in 1876, they saw their opportunity to make history. In the same year that Anthony declared the list of women's rights and the nation celebrated its centennial, Colorado Territory prepared to become a state. Suffragists wanted it to enter into the Union as the first state to secure women's suffrage. But to support women's suffrage in a territory was one thing. To support it in a state was a more difficult decision. Colorado suffragists petitioned the Constitutional Convention, but politicians balked. In tones reminiscent of the 15th Amendment debates, they told women to wait. They didn't want to risk Congress rejecting their constitution and thus their petition for statehood because they had included this radical point. Instead, they promised that one year after statehood, Colorado politicians would offer a voter referendum on the question of women's suffrage. Suffragists accepted this deal. The referendum would not require congressional approval and would only need a simple majority. But the fight for suffrage was not simple. Promptly after statehood, the Colorado Women's Suffrage Association formed. The CWSA sent representatives to mining towns, to the Spanish-speaking areas of the state, and into the immigrant neighborhoods of Denver. The vote was set for October 1877. Early on, it became clear that one of the suffrage movement's largest bases of support, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, was going to face problems. Suffragist Henry Blackwell warned that, quote, the strength of our opponents consists of the liquor selling and liquor drinking interests. While the alcohol question was not the only problem, the suffrage measure failed. After the national suffragists left town, Colorado suffragists would have to regroup. Three years later, in 1880, Oregon suffrage experienced a similar defeat and the first generation of national suffragists quietly closed the door on the West. However, these defeats left room for local and second-generation suffragists to emerge. Like many of her fellow Western suffragists, Carolyn Nichols Churchill was a lot of things, a free love and birth control advocate, a journalist, and a representative of the new woman. This term, new woman, referred to women who no longer only saw themselves, and thereby suffrage, in domestic terms. Instead, Churchill and her other members of the new generation, such as fellow Coloradan Ellis Meredith and rising star Carrie Chapman Catt, were educated, opinionated, independent, and career-oriented. While Churchill remained a local force in Colorado, Catt became a dominant voice in the national movement. Catt was born in Ripon, Wisconsin in 1859 and moved to Charles City, Iowa in 1866, where she started school. Initially interested in medicine, Kat convinced her father to allow her to attend the Iowa State Agricultural College, now Iowa State University, a university that had been founded as co-educational in 1859. Upon graduation in 1880 with a Bachelor of Science degree, Kat took a position first as a law clerk and then as a teacher in Mason City, Iowa, where she eventually became the first female superintendent. Kat's first marriage ended after only one year when her husband, Leo Chapman, died suddenly of typhoid fever. She returned to Iowa from California, where she eventually married George Catt. It was George, a wealthy engineer, who encouraged her to get involved with women's suffrage and supported her growing travel commitment for the movement. In fact, Carrie Chapman Catt rarely lived with her husband, choosing instead to travel with longtime companion and fellow suffragist Molly Hay. In time, Catt and fellow suffragist Anna Howard Shaw became not only examples of the new woman, but also of new national leadership. 
they saw the movement in political terms and chose to embrace a whatever-means-necessary approach to get support from local, state, and national leaders. What this meant was often a subordination of black women's voices and a belief that the white women's vote would cancel out other possible voters. The new woman's independence did not mean that they all held more open views on race, ethnicity, and class, or reasons why white women should get the vote. Kat would eventually become the president of the National American Woman Suffrage Association, but in her speeches supporting women's suffrage, she used arguments from evolutionary biology and the emerging concept of social Darwinism to warn against the dangers posed to American democracy by immigrants and Native Americans, like the, quote, murderous Sioux. These racist beliefs were not unusual for their time and remind us that very few civil rights movements are truly universalist movements. While Kat developed a national presence, other women, like Carolyn Nichols Churchill, used a similar blend of modern and racist thinking to garner support for women's suffrage. Churchill was a self-described, well-rounded nonconformist whose newspaper, The Queen Bee, declared itself to be a Democratic-Republican, greenback, know-nothing, pro-China woman suffragist paper. However, when you dig deeper into her pro-China, meaning Chinese immigrants' position, Churchill's support was essentially in support of Chinese men, and more specifically Chinese men who ran laundries and other businesses that could free up middle-class white women's time for suffrage activities and career pursuits. I bring up the examples of Cat and Churchill not to provide gotcha moments for past suffragists or to hold them up to 21st century racial, ethnic, or religious tolerance standards that most of them wouldn't pass anyway. Instead, it is important to remember that on all scales, national, regional, and local, these women represent versions of the complex reasons that suffragists held for supporting the vote. They give us a clue as to how difficult it is to create a movement for white women in diverse regions and why it's important to look beyond the national activities and examine the regional ones. The West absolutely led the way in extending suffrage at the territorial and state levels, but how Western suffragists did this, often with support from the national leaders and movement, demonstrate the compromises and limitations that suffragists were willing to accept so they could vote. Not everyone wanted the vote for all the same reasons or for all the same people. While the women's suffrage movement can claim roots in the universal suffrage ideology, we must also recognize the movement's racist, anti-immigrant, and classist roots because they affected women then and the movement in the future, even today. Like the West, the Midwest is a region that can boast early suffrage activism and successes. But also like the West, the Midwest state campaigns proved to be more difficult than initially expected and fraught with anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic rhetoric. In considering Midwestern suffrage, I spoke with Dr. Sarah Eggie, the Claude D. Pottinger Professor of History at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. In some ways, the Midwestern suffrage movement, leaders, and associations fit into the national movement. But as Dr. Eggie points out, they also have their regional differences that, like the movement in the West, allow us to see some of the struggles within the movement. There's certainly things that the Midwestern suffragists share with national leaders. Overall, there's a shared messaging, although there's lots of distinctions in that message. Obviously, women arguing for the right to vote in sort of this kind of idea that women ought to vote because um, they're equal or because they contribute in some way to the politics that will enhance politics. Um, but then there's really, a, I think, more distinctions in terms of the Midwest. So first, in terms of leaders, the leaders in the Midwest were really um, mostly middle class. Many of them were white 
Anglo. So I, I don't necessarily mean white in a broad, expansive way. The, the racial differences were noteworthy at this time in the Midwest. So people who were suffragists were often Anglo-Saxon and thought of themselves as distinct from maybe other immigrants, especially European immigrants who weren't from countries that had that Anglo-Saxon background. They were typically educated. And then probably the biggest thing that sets them apart, again, it's a small distinction, but it's really important, is that um, one of the reasons they wanted the right to vote was because they were very involved in their communities. They practiced what I call civic responsibility. So they were, uh, as the Midwest was being settled, uh, they are really the ones, these women, who are building libraries and post offices and schools and churches and public buildings. And so they have it almost like an ownership stake in this region and in their communities. And so they believe very strongly that their community engagement, their civic activism positions them well to then vote. And they also argue, again, in a bit of a distinction that they don't necessarily want the vote because they believe women are equal. They, they probably do believe this. They just don't say it. But they really say that they're responsible and they understand the responsibilities of being citizens because they had built up their communities and they had done all the civic activism and community engagement. And so they believed then that the vote was sort of a natural next step as responsible citizens. So that becomes a really important reason. And it's a reason that's distinct to the Midwest as to other regions or uh, from the national suffragists. Much like the small but important differences in leadership and motivation, the structure and function of the women's suffrage movement also developed differently in the Midwest. When we think about like how these movements were actually structured in the Midwest, unlike other places, the Midwest is just being settled in the late 19th century. Certainly there were lots of people there before. I don't mean to suggest that there was nothing and then all of a sudden white people show up. That's wrong, of course. Um, but the movement was brought really um, by these white American settlers. and they really encountered a vast area with little infrastructure, with undeveloped resources, very small populations. And so the methods they had to employ were sort of taking into account that vast, difficult to travel place. And so the train was one way when there were railroads uh, that were built, then they could take that. Uh, but a lot of the context that they made, especially in the late 19th century, really until the advent of automobiles, there were really piecemeal. Mostly when people would hear about suffrage, it was through a newspaper or some sort of pamphlet that would be handed out and passed around. So literature and paper really becomes important when you can't actually have a lot of face-to-face -face context because the settlement has not occurred in a way that allows for that to happen. Yeah, I really appreciated the ways in which the you detailed that the women were really creative in the ways that they reached out to these communities and, you know, having also to take maybe a break for winter, um, not being able to travel. But it was the creativity that they bring to the movement is is quite interesting and enlivening for it. Right. So they realize that just because it's difficult to travel or because populations are really low and there's still lots of immigration coming to this area at the time doesn't mean that they can't just not be activists in this place, especially in some of the states where they have a number of amendment campaigns. In South Dakota, for example, the earliest amendment campaign is in 1890 
right after the state became a state. And so you have this sort of impulse, this recognition that we can't just abandon this important work. So they do have to be very creative. For many Midwestern suffragists, the development of a movement paralleled what they had already done and used a creative resourcefulness, the same sense of civic responsibility, to build the movement. And one of the things that I love is that they they infuse it into what they're already doing. Um, so they're building libraries or they're building churches, and then in those same churches, they're hosting suffragists, um, whichever ones can actually come. But they're able to then sort of transform those spaces that weren't necessarily political spaces, weren't meant, like a church is not necessarily meant to be a political space, but it becomes so when you have lectures or you have meetings or you have just gatherings where people can discuss the issues of the day. Schools became, the schoolhouse campaigns were incredibly important as well for suffragists. And once again, they're transforming that sort of community activism and engagement that they had Uh, as they were building these communities into the sort of suffrage movement. And so, yeah, it's it's sort of using what you have, and, and that's really what they had to do. However, much as we might find evidence of making do and rising to the challenge within the Western and Midwestern movements, there are differences that they have from the national movement, in particular, immigrants and temperance. Midwestern suffragists were unable to separate the two. Probably one of the most significant conflicts centered on the role of the temperance movement and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Founded in 1874, the WCTU's stated purpose was to create, quote, a sober and pure world through abstinence, purity, and evangelical Christianity by prohibiting the manufacture and sale of intoxicating beverages. Women were particularly drawn to the WCTU because of its attempts to rid society of the dangers of alcohol. They saw women as vulnerable to repercussions of these dangers, domestic violence, abandonment, and poverty. Under the leadership of its second president, Frances Willard, the WCTU not only grew into one of the largest organizations in the United States, but it also connected women to the suffrage movement. Many saw that if they could control the vote, they could vote for candidates that would support prohibition. Willard's two-decade-long leadership would draw in supporters across the country and eventually around the world. While the WCTU could claim victories in all regions, its influence on suffrage was probably felt greatest in the Midwest. Again, Dr. Eggy. One of the key issues in so many of these Midwestern states is that local suffragists came to women's suffrage through the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, which was started in the Midwest. And in the late 19th century, it was way more popular than women's suffrage. And one of the issues is that these women are saying, yeah, we want the right to vote so that we can institute prohibition. Well, that's not going to fly for a lot of these immigrant populations, especially ones that want to drink. <laughs> so, And national suffragists know this. And so they're trying to tell these local suffragists, hey, you need to downplay your uh, attention and your contacts with temperance. And these Midwestern suffragists are saying, well, we can't. This is what we know. This is the reason why we want to vote. And so that really becomes a contentious issue. And one of the great cases is in, is in 1898 in South Dakota, the state suffrage association were made up entirely of temperance advocates in the WCTU. They were basically one in the same executive body running both organizations. And the national organization said, we're not going to work with you in South Dakota. You're on your own. And I find that campaign really compelling because it's really one of the only campaigns where the National American Suffrage Association, or NASA, completely washed their hands 
and said, we're not going to help. And so then you get this fascinating moment where a lot of local advocates, they called themselves home talent. <laughs> they had to really carry this in the best way they could. And certainly it was, it was quite difficult without the backing of national suffragists to at least give them some authenticity and some sort of help about what we, how they should organize themselves and along what lines they should do their work. In order to address the issue of immigration, Midwestern suffragists found they had to make attempts to reach out to immigrants in creative ways. By the 1898 campaign in South Dakota, and I know that this happens later on in Iowa in 1916, they're doing it even more, they start to translate all of their propaganda into other languages. In the 1898 campaign in South Dakota, it's uh, German and Norwegian and other Scandinavian languages. Um, and then in Iowa, 1916, there's a ton of different languages that they're using, that they're um, translating. So that's another way that they're trying to get the message out to people who may not at this point speak English because they haven't lived in the United States very long and they haven't learned it or they can't read it. And then the other thing they do is they start to employ speakers that speak Norwegian or German. Um, on this point, there just aren't that many German speakers or Norwegian speakers who will also speak publicly about women's suffrage. So it becomes difficult just because they can't get enough lectures to send them out to all the places that want them. And so they try, they, they do get them out there as much as they can, but it, it is a kind of tricky for them. They, they report in their letters a lot of consternation. Attempts to incorporate new immigrant communities into the suffrage movement also faced a growing anti-immigrant sentiment and larger questions on who is and who should be performing the rights of citizens. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, nativism is by no means relegated to the suffrage movement, but the latter question, who should be performing the acts of citizenship, becomes particularly delicate when Anglo women are confronted with immigrant men who have been granted the right to vote, sometimes even only in anticipation of naturalization. The desire to simultaneously include and exclude immigrants remained one of the issues that helps define the Midwestern suffrage movement. So there's this growing anti-immigrant and nativist sentiment over the course of the movement. It's at the national level, state level, and it sort of is at the local level, although a little more muted. But despite that, local activists recognize that they have to include these immigrants because these immigrants are part of their communities. Um, many of them are becoming naturalized citizens and can vote. And in two of the states in my study, Minnesota and South Dakota, these states until about World War I era, about 1918, 1919, they have a provision called alien suffrage. And this allows non-citizen, these are not naturalized people to vote. And basically what this means is during the naturalization process, which is a five-year period, these people would get the right to vote in year two, after they had taken out what was called a declaration of intention. So it means like, I'm going to be a citizen at some point. I'm not a citizen yet because I don't have the five-year residency requirement fulfilled, but I intend to be a citizen. And in these states, they would say, okay, here's your, the right to vote. And they could vote. So suffragists in these states in particular, and South Dakota and Minnesota are not the only ones in the Midwest. There's quite a few states that have this provision. They recognize that these are voters and they're not even citizens. So They've only maybe been there for two years. And so that means that they really have to integrate them into these campaigns. This type of do-it-yourself activism is something that not only Midwestern suffragists experience, but also, and maybe to a larger extent, African-American suffragists. While African-Americans had been part of the suffrage movement from the beginning, 
the development of the movement did not always address the needs first of enslaved women, but then also freed women and the growing African-American middle class of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. After the passage of the 15th Amendment in 1870, Southern white women took up the cause of suffrage to offset the newly enfranchised former enslaved men. They campaigned viciously in the South, arguing that their vote would protect them from the ravages of the black men. This racially and sexually infused image was familiar to white women in the South. Prior to the full force of Jim Crow laws, African-American men voted, bought property and opened businesses, and most alarming to the white middle class, they served in state legislatures. For Southern women, these transformations of economic, social, and political power threatened their way of life, a lifestyle they believed could be protected with the vote. By 1890, most Southern African-American men had been disfranchised, voted out of office, and economically marginalized, such that Southern white women no longer faced the supposed threat in their region. However, African-American men, while still facing extreme challenges in racism, remained enfranchised in many Northern cities and states. Southern women and many other American women believed their enfranchisement was still needed to offset the black vote. When the National and American Suffrage Associations merged in 1890, they had a choice to make. How do they combine African Americans, who had been active in both the National and American Suffrage Associations, and Southern white women, who were just starting to become active, into the same organization? The answer was, of course, that they couldn't. National leadership caved, allowing Southern women into the movement, segregating events, meetings, and parades, and further sublimating Black women's voices. But let's be clear. While women of color are crucial to women's suffrage at all stages, even before 1890, black women's voices, interest in suffrage, and demand for rights, in particular protection over black bodies from lynching and rape, were never foremost on any suffrage association list. In response, African-American suffragists worked within the movements to have their voices heard, but they also formed their own organizations to address black community and black women's issues outright. African-American women continued to see the vote as protection for themselves, their families, and their communities. They realized that voting gave you a voice in community values, and they wanted their interests on the table. Similar to their white counterparts, African-American women also saw new leadership rise in the 1880s and 1890s and take on old issues of race, gender, and suffrage in new, and depending on your perspective, exciting or alarming ways. As Reconstruction gave way to the Jim Crow era, black suffragists saw the need for new strategies and arguments to protect black men's vote while also advocating for their own suffrage rights. Scholar Elsa Barkley Brown argues that during this time, activists discovered the strength of three main black institutions, the press, the church, and the colleges. These three institutions would help to disseminate the message, to train a new generation of black female speakers and organizers, and to connect black women across the country in new and vitally important ways for the black women's suffrage movement. While black church and college educated women took up the call to activism, the work of the female African-American journalists cannot be overstated. Writing for black newspapers across the country, they developed arguments in support of suffrage with a focus on the African-American community. Their writing was as strident and sometimes even more hard-hitting than their white counterparts. But black women journalists, such as Carrie Langston of Lawrence, Kansas, and Mary McCurdy of Rome, Georgia, also expressed a rejection of an inferior place in society and encouraged fellow black women to get involved in politics to help solve the social ills and injustices that befell the black community. The 
The most famous African-American female journalist was Ida B. Wells Barnett. Wells Barnett was born into slavery in Holly Springs, Mississippi in 1862. After losing her parents to yellow fever at the age of 16, she raised her siblings with the help of her grandmother while attending Rust College. She eventually found work as a teacher in Memphis, Tennessee, where she continued her education, taking classes at Fisk University. In 1884, a train conductor for the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad Company ordered her to give up her seat in the first-class ladies' car and move to the segregated black car, which was not sectioned out by class. In the 1880s, being seen in the company of rougher-class men could be damaging to the reputation of a middle-class woman. Along these lines, Wells Barnett filed suit, claiming that there were no provisions made for middle-class black women and that she was denied access to her property, in this case, her reputation. Though she won at the local level, the Tennessee Supreme Court reversed the ruling, claiming that her persistence in the case demonstrated not the desire for a more comfortable and dignified ride, but instead to agitate and challenge the status quo of segregation. Wells Barnett wrote about her experience for The Living Way, a black church weekly newspaper. This publication led to additional opportunities, including writing for and becoming co-owner of the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight newspaper. Wells Barnett's journalism was similar to the muckraking style of her time, hard-hitting exposés that shed light on systemic and institutional problems for the black community, in particular racial segregation, inequality, and lynching. In fact, her 1892 pamphlet, Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases, was written in response to the 1889 lynching of a black man at the People's Grocery, a black-owned grocery in Memphis. In Southern Horrors, she argues that Southerners cried rape against white women to hide the real reasons of lynching, black economic and political successes. In response to increased threats, she relocated to Chicago, like so many African-American refugees from racial violence. In Chicago, Wells Barnett continued to write on racial violence and segregation, but also became increasingly connected to the suffrage movement. Like many other black women, she saw suffrage as a way to support the black community and to elect black representatives. However, Wells Barnett was uncompromising in the face of white suffragists' racism, calling out women like the WCTU's President Francis Willard, who blamed African Americans' behavior for temperance's defeat in the South. This would not be her last conflict with white suffrage leadership over their racism. In response to racism, segregation, and limited influence in white suffrage organizations, African-American women like Wells Barnett formed their own suffrage societies. The nexus of this activity came from the large middle-class African-American community in Washington, D.C. By the turn of the 20th century, dozens of single and married feminists and suffragists had relocated to the nation's capital. Some women, such as Angelina Weld Grimke, came from noted abolitionist and middle-class families. When Grimke arrived in D.C., she began to associate with other members of the black suffrage movement, such as Mary Church Terrell and Coralie Franklin Cook. Terrell and Cook had both migrated in the late 19th century and had established themselves as educators, serving as representatives on D.C.'s school board in the local chapter of the National American Woman Suffrage Association and in African-American social and political clubs. Other women, such as Anna Cooper and Nanny Burroughs, grew up in more modest homes and found a place in D.C.'s activist circle through education. This latter generation of black suffragists, Grimke, Cooper, and Burroughs, found themselves pushing against middle-class conventions in the politics of respectability, positions that also made their suffrage politics more radical in relation to Terrell and Cook. Regardless of class and political differences, D.C.'s core suffrage and activist members formed the national nexus of black suffrage activity and helped establish the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs in 1896. 
Founded at the first National Conference of the Colored Women of America, the NACW brought together 42 black women's suffrage clubs from across 14 states, including the Women's Era Club of Boston and the National League of Colored Women of D.C. The mission of this new umbrella organization was to help all African-American women by working on issues of civil rights and justice, including ending Jim Crow and lynching and supporting women's suffrage. For African-American activists, these issues could not be separated and hinged on black suffrage, including black women's suffrage, to help protect their communities from the injustices of Jim Crow and the horrors of lynching. In 1913, Wells Barnett and her white colleagues Bell Square and Virginia Brooks organized the Alpha Suffrage Club. The first and most important black suffrage club in Chicago, it fought to protect black women's voting rights in Chicago and aimed to inform black women of their civic responsibilities in helping to elect candidates who would serve the interests of the African-American community in Chicago. While not as influential as the movement in Washington, D.C., Wells Barnett's presence and support made the Alpha Suffrage Club an important force within the black suffrage network and an instrumental reason that a suffrage amendment passed in Illinois in 1913, a success that Carrie Chapman Catt attributed to an overnight reinvigoration of the movement. decade of the 20th century, the women's suffrage movement was beginning to shift. Early successes in the western states had not led to sweeping suffrage victories at either the state or federal levels, but they had led to some. Those in the national movement might have nicknamed this period the doldrums, but when we look at the regional and state levels, we do see some change. We see additional suffrage rights won. We see, in the face of continued failures, more sophisticated and tenacious movements adapting to their changing surroundings and conditions. And we see the emergence of black women's suffrage organizations and leaders that challenged the status quo of the national movement and, when ignored, struck out on their own to address what women's suffrage could do for their communities. Suffrage continued to entice new members, but regional, racial, and class-based differences in what exactly the women's vote would do and the changes it could bring became clear challenges to a newly reunified movement. However, Carrie Chapman Catt's 1913 enthusiasm over a reinvigorated movement would prove to be well-placed. Sort of. While momentum for women's suffrage picked up after 1913, as 18 additional states extended women's suffrage between 1914 and the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, Kat could have never imagined or predicted what that momentum would look like and how those victories would be achieved in the face of violence and world war. In our next episode of Hindsight, we will explore the final push towards suffrage that included the more radical and militant leadership of Alice Paul and Lucy Burns. We will examine how the movement turned finally to include the voices and issues of working class women. And as we see the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, a brief moment of celebration, we will ask two critical questions. Who really gets the vote? And what do suffragists do next?
Hindsight is hosted by Dr. Robin Henry and produced by Fletcher Powell in the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. The digital editor for the podcast is Beth Golay. All artwork for Hindsight is created by Jordan Kirtley. Support for Hindsight comes from Drs. Martha and Daniel Householder, the George R. Tiller MD Memorial Fund for the Advancement of Women's Health, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.